Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the many and varied challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and Tall, T-A-L-L dot com. Uh, my co-host today is my colleague from TechBlocks, Peter Goral. Peter has joined me on quite a number of interviews in the last few months and uh, always adds a lot of great uh, things to the uh, interview. Uh, tell us about yourself, Peter, and TechBlocks uh, before we introduce uh, Tibor Shanto. Oh, thanks very much, Tom. That was uh, nice of you to introduce me that way. And it's always a pleasure to uh, do these interviews with you. Yes, my name's Peter Goral. I'm uh, Vice President of Business Development and Client Relations here at TechBlocks. And at TechBlocks, it's our mission through a convergence of consulting, creativity, and technology to serve our clients uh, by helping them to optimize their business in the digital world. Now, just to give you an example of what uh, kind of things we do, um, we, we develop, uh, for instance, customer self-serve portals that empower our our clients' customers by giving them an access to information they didn't ordinarily have to go digging deeper for. And we can talk about that a little bit later on. It might even come come up in conversation uh, with Tibor. Uh, so thanks again, and uh, good morning, everyone. Well, our guest today is Tibor Shanto. And uh, to be honest, I've followed Tibor for like three or four years now. I am a fan of his. I read all his LinkedIn posts. He was recommended to me by another fan of his, Milos Buladovic. And so it's exciting for me to interview Tibor. Uh, Tibor Shanto has been a sales leader for over 25 years, helping companies achieve and improve their revenue goals. Initially, he was a sales rep. Then he progressed to leadership roles with companies including the Goldman Mail, Dow Jones, Factiva, and Reuters. Uh, Tibor has been called a brilliant sales tactician, helping sales teams and organizations to better execute their sales process. As a principal with Renbor Sales Solutions, he works with leading B2B sales organizations, improving critical aspects of their sales cycle, including shortening their sales cycle, increasing their closing ratios, and creating double-digit growth through the execution of their strategy by using the right combination of strategic and tactical execution supported by metrics and our follow-through action plan. Tibor is also one of the speakers at the upcoming Toronto Sales Summit on April the 6th. Sadly for you, you won't be able to buy a ticket to see it live because it's sold out already, but I know Tibor and the speakers at the event have a number, two or three different ways that you'll be able to get the information from the event online, uh, and so that's uh, pretty exciting. Welcome to the show today, Tibor. A pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Tom. So uh, interesting. Let's start a little bit with the uh, Toronto Sales Summit, and anybody listening after this recording is not going to be able to buy a ticket. I understand uh, there was only one left and a few days ago, and it was sold, but uh, Tim Herson had mentioned uh, there's a few ways that you're going to have it available for people afterwards, right? Right. So there is actually one ticket still left. Uh, we were able to talk to a couple of people who had uh, 
through uh, arrangements, had prearranged for a ticket. Um, so there is one left. So hopefully through uh, the next few minutes we can convince people to buy that last ticket. But as you say, that's not the end of it. We are also webcasting the event live so people, whether they are in Toronto or anywhere around the planet with access to the web, will be able to uh, attend, participate, including ask questions, you in the roundtable. Um, so I think that the only thing that they'll be missing is the coffee and snacks. Otherwise, they could be full participants through a live simultaneous uh, webcast. Nice. And that summit is aimed at sales managers and vice presidents of sales as opposed to uh, sales people, correct? It is very much aimed at the executive level, at the leadership level. Uh, we love salespeople and we love working with them, but this event is not geared at them. It really is, as the name suggests, looking how organizations can improve performance management. So performance is part of that, but this really, the focus is, if you look at the speakers, um, we are going to be communicating ways that sales leadership can improve and manage the performance of their teams. So I think that a lot of frontline salespeople may find some interest, but it really is geared at sales leadership who have accountability for the quality of performance of their organizations. Nice. And the website for that is torontosalesummit.com, correct? That's right. Nice. Uh, Peter, why don't you start off with the first question for uh, Tibor here? Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. I appreciate that. And good morning, Tibor. And uh, uh, by the way, congratulations on uh, on a sellout. Uh, and I understand this is your this is your first uh, uh, effort in the combined effort for the sales summit. So it sounds to me that uh, uh, this this first one is a good one, uh, uh, having sold out, and probably going to have more. So congratulations on that. Thank you very um, much. Every time I get somebody on uh, the line that's uh, that's big in sales, uh, the the one question that bubbles up because I get it all the time is the nature nurture question about are you a born salesman? You know, and and uh, I mean I have some thoughts on it, but I'm uh, for the sake of our audience. Uh, what are your thoughts on whether a person's actually a born salesman or whether you can actually develop a salesperson? What's your theory? So I think, you know, as, as with most things in life, it's not a black and white. I think that there are some people who are born with some attributes and characteristics that naturally make it easier for them to become a salesperson. But I also believe that because I look at sales as being a science that is artfully executed, so a similar question often is, is sales an art or a science? And I tend to believe that it's a science that's artfully executed. I think you can take somebody who is not a salesperson, and if they're willing to follow a process and they're willing to follow a discipline, and as Tom mentioned in his introduction, you know, work their metrics, then I think you can make them successful salespeople. You can take mm -hmm. the same training and the same development with somebody who has natural attributes and so on, and they will just take it further, or for the outsiders, they're just going to make it look easier, and therefore they'll, people will believe that they're natural. But I also think that that's changing over the last few years as the pendulum has swung with information and other things available to buyers. A lot of people who before were deemed to be natural salespeople we're really playing off their personalities and so on. Um, I think that's becoming diminished in its importance and success in sales these days. 
So I really mm-hmm. think the pendulum is beginning to come back to center, that there are certain things that you have to execute, certain activities that you have to do that will allow anybody to become a good salesperson and how they get to be great is a number of different things come into play. One of those could be personalities or some natural-born attributes. But, I, you know, I don't believe somebody's a natural-born salesperson. I think they have the right ingredients, and somebody or something has to come along and mix it up. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, I think you answered that the way that I, that I think I've thought about it for uh, many years. I think that first and foremost, you have to be um, a good communicator, you know, with, with people. You know, you have to be open enough to have that uh, initial conversation. And, of course, you mentioned um, in your answer the fact that there's so much information around today and your clients already beat you. I find your clients already beat you to to the answer, and it's it's a matter of you, uh, in a sense, curating uh, uh, the the sale. And so, you know, if you're talented enough to be able to manage that information and manage the relationship with your client, uh, it it tends to come together. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think this. To, um, so I think I tend to divide buyers into two camps. There are those who, as you said, they've been to your website, they have the information. These are the people who are actively out there looking. They have a need, they just got a large order, and they realize that they need to you know, grow capacity, or they realize maybe that an equipment is coming to an end of life, so in the next six months mm-hmm. they have to replace it. But I think there's also a group out there, and that's the part that I focus on. There's a large part of the market that's not in play. If you spoke to them this morning as they're leaving their driveway, my product, my service, my offering is not top of mind to them. And I think right. that salespeople, so I think there are buyers and then there's people who need to be sold. And I think that mm-hmm. the best salespeople are the ones who execute a formula that allows them to engage with somebody who wasn't thinking about that particular product or offering and actually taking that and turning it into a conversation and then by jointly going through the buy-sell journey, they create a sale where others may have missed it. And I think probably, to your point, probably the biggest attribute that helps salespeople do that is just plain old curiosity. If I'm curious, I'm going to ask interesting questions right. to engage the buyer. If I'm not curious, I'm going to end up pitching, which is going to turn off the buyer. Right, exactly. Actually, that, that that's interesting you mentioned that, because uh, that um, that movie played in my head uh, yesterday as I as I'm, as I'm on the phone with with a, a senior director of IT for a very large manufacturing company based in the U.S. And we just had a conversation about you know what's life and his what's life like in his organization, and uh, and and he decided he was going to give me a menu. A menu of what's going on in the world, in his world, and uh, and I just I just tossed out, oh, here's an idea you might want to take a look at for that. And it's it's a freebie, as it were, you know. And all of a sudden he's like, oh wow, I never thought of it that way. Hmm. Yeah, I'm more interested. In fact, that now has come to the top of my top of my funnel, right? So, I mean, and that's uh, so you know, it is a matter of like. Sometimes waking up that sleeping giant, right? Yeah, you got to get them to think. And if you can't get them to think, then they're going to stay, you know, the course that they're on. But if you can get them to think in a positive way, 
um, then they're going to engage in dialogue, and it's amazing in any facet of life what dialogue could lead to. Yeah, no, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's yeah, true. yeah. Now, Tibor, in your uh, intro, the word metrics was there. And uh, I worked for a management consultant for four years, uh, managing a team of inside salespeople. Their job was to book appointments with presidents of medium and ginormous companies. And uh, metrics was new to me. And it was new to the people working on my team. And, oh, there was some kickback and fight back. And, well, sales is, a, is an art. And, and metrics, like, oh, it wasn't an easy uh, introduction. But when you follow metrics, and the metrics were like four action steps, so many calls a day, so many booked meetings, so many completed meetings, etc. And and but when you have those four simple metrics, you always know twenty whatever time of the day it is, during the day you always know what are you focusing on. There's only four things. And so I learned to really enjoy metrics and I loved managing by metrics because you didn't have to take into account the person or uh, themselves. It's just metrics are you doing these four things how are you on these four metrics and so it made managing a lot easier and it really did get results a lot better than trying to do it like a science and so sometimes salespeople kick back at uh, having metrics forced upon them but in the end it makes them better salespeople and you seem to focus a lot on uh, execution or uh, this management consultant called it implementation. They were an implementation-based consultant, which is similar to execution. So uh, that makes you a little different than a lot of the sales trainers I've come across is that your big focus is on execution. Why do you think that's so important? Because ultimately, I mean, in a simple sense, execution is where it gets done. One of my taglines is that in sales, it's about execution. Everything else is just talk. And unless you're a public speaker, you're not going to get paid for talking. So if you're in sales, then you should be executing. And I think what's very much underneath what you're saying, and I would agree with, with it all, is two elements that are key, I think, to success in sales, which is, A, accountability, and metrics make you accountable. They also make the organization Accountable. So I want to be clear that accountability is a two-way street. It's not just something that we want to thrust on the salespeople. Um, the other is it makes the salesperson own their own success. If I own my own metrics, if I own my own numbers, I'm in charge of my own destiny. I can adjust my, my sales approach and so on. And, and what I find interesting and maybe even humorous at times, when you work with salespeople, so whether you're working in the States or whether you're working up here in Canada, and you ask them, let's say up here in Canada, you know, how many people here like hockey? You know, a lot of people put up their hands. And then you ask them who their favorite player is. And, you know, they'll tell you. And you go, okay, so what's this plus minus? And they'll know it down to a T. Like you can, you know, you can query them and they'll know five or six of their favorite players, you know, plus minus. And then when you ask them what their numbers are, they haven't got a clue. And I always ask them, why is it that you know the plus minus of something that may be results in a 5 or $10 bet, but your livelihood is dependent on these other metrics and you don't know them. So I think it drives, in addition to what you said, it drives accountability. Um, it drives ownership. And if I own my own destiny, then I'm going to take steps to improve it. And the beautiful thing about sales is that the more that I improve my craft, the more money I'm likely to make. 
Nice. Yeah. I like that. And it keeps you on track, too. I was thinking of this uh, as you were talking that uh, a lot of salespeople, let's say they hit their goal for the week on Tuesday. Well, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday tend to not be as productive, whereas if you have metrics, they require daily work, regardless of whether you hit your target for that week by Tuesday, you still got to hit next week's target. And so metrics require that you still take action Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so metrics are good in that it keeps you action-oriented, keeps you working towards uh, your metrics and even maybe next week's numbers, even if you've got this week's numbers early on in the game. And so I, I really like metrics for that. Like, yeah, okay, you had a great two days, but guess what? Your metrics are still the same tomorrow and the day after and the day after as far as the number of dials and book meetings and conducted meetings. And so I really did learn to love mat- metrics and managing by metrics uh, because it, it forced your salespeople not to be complacent when they had a good day or a couple of good days. Peter, why don't you uh, grab the next uh, question for Tibor? Yeah, I, I'm actually going to stay on that metrics uh, uh, that metrics subject because you know it's uh, it it's a keen one. You know, I think it's a big play right now in the in in, in the entire world uh, that people are watching numbers uh, that guide them to outcomes, and you know I I see that. You know, despite all the best disciplines in play that we tend to be as human beings, if things aren't going right, we start to jump and start looking at those shiny objects, that low-hanging fruit. And I, I, I've got a feeling that, 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 that the sales management today is plagued with that because I've witnessed it in a number of different places. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Tibor? So there's a couple of things you touch on. I, I, I think one of the best elements of metrics is that it's an opportunity for self-improvement. So, again, if we go back to the world of sports, if I'm a 100-meter runner, I want to know what I'm running that 100 meters now at so I can set targets for what kind of improvement I want to make. Once I set those targets, I can examine what, what activities or what in my stride I have to change and so on. The second point, I think, is very valid and I think sometimes overlooked that we just miss it because it's happening in real time. And that is, you know, there's a, there's, it takes a little bit longer than most people's patience to make changes and improvements and so on. And so I think sometimes mm-hmm. management is too focused on the here and now and not willing to give enough time or enough room for improvement to take place, to take hold, because it's got to plant roots and, and it's got to grow some fruit that way. So as a result, right. salespeople are subtly given permission to chase the shiny objects as opposed to being given permission to ignore the shiny object and let's work through this uh, process of improvement with you and let's take elements of the grander improvements we want to make and let's focus on one step at a time so by the time we get through that, they'll actually be an upgraded salesperson. So one of the things I find surprising with a lot of companies that I work with is when I ask their frontline managers, do you have a coaching plan for each of your reps? Um, More often than not, they don't. There is a notion Mm -hmm. that they should be coaching. There is, you know, meetings, quote-unquote, that are scheduled. 
but do they really have a coaching plan? Do they sit down and say, what do I need to do for Barbara? If, if, if we're going to embark on an improvement process for Barbara, what's going to change in the next 12 months? And what are the steps that have to change? And what are the things that I have to affect between now and then to help Barbara achieve those changes and, by extension, help my organization achieve their goals? So I do agree that there is... Um, you know, we live in an ADHD society that communicates in 140 characters. It doesn't allow room mm-hmm. for long-term thinking. Right, right. Well, you touched on a you touched on an interesting subject too, because any time that you're thinking of a coaching plan, a performance improvement plan, or or anything uh, of that nature, there's two sides to that plan. There's the incumbent, you know, that that's requiring the coaching and needing the performance improvement, and then there's you as the coach, or the manager that has to commit a certain amount of time and a certain amount of effort into the success of that plan. And the reality is, your time as a uh, as a senior sales executive is usually hammered by running the business tied a little bit to operations perhaps you're you know perhaps you're having to uh, go out and uh, um, take partner sessions a number of different things that are going to pull you aside from that and you know how do you get around that you know as a professional as a professional sales manager you know what kinds of things do you present to your clients to help them get over that hump of the uh, being forced into that commitment and having to make it and, and, and still do their job. So there's a couple of things, and we can probably spend a few hours on it, but let's sort of deal with a couple of highlights because I'm sure they'll lead right. to follow-throughs. So one of the things that I find puzzling in sales is that, and it's not puzzling, I understand where it's coming from, is that people tend to manage to the calendar. So, you know, especially public companies, they need to report numbers quarterly. Um, even private companies, they you know, they mark themselves either by the end of the month or by the end of the quarter or whatever period that aligns with their financial calendar. And I think that as a sales leader, whether you're at the top or whether you're in the middle, you really should be managing to the cycle. You should know approximately what the sales cycle length might be, what it looks like, and this is where process comes in because you can identify and define and, and manage to that. And, and, again, I'm not pretending that it's easy because, again, there are financial pressures and we need to deliver right. um, against expectations. But if you're going to manage the front line, you need to somehow look up and look down and help them execute their sales cycle, but in a way that also satisfies the financial requirements of the organization. But, you know, somebody once taught me a very interesting notion that today is really the last day that I can affect my sales cycle. So if I can focus on starting enough sales cycles today that will deliver, and let's say my sales cycle is three months, that will deliver results 90 days out, and I can continue to focus on that, financial periods will come and go, and as long as I'm satisfying the sales cycle, they'll feed the financial period. The other mm-hmm. is this notion of time. At the end of the day, you know, time is the currency of sales. It's the one equalizer, and it's what we do with time that will differentiate one salesperson from another. But I think that same thing also applies to managers, how I encourage my people to use their time, how I demonstrate and lead in the usage of time is going to impact and dictate how my people use it. And I just find that people sometimes 
use their time ineffectively. And if they can tighten that up a little bit, and that's where the manager can really help from a coaching, a metrics, a process standpoint, um, you can really help your salespeople, again, going back to ignoring some of the shiny objects. And ultimately, what's the cost of chasing a shiny object? Time. So I think that yeah. if managers looked at those two things, both are aligned around time. Manage your sales cycle. Don't manage by the calendar. And then within your sales cycle, optimize your time. I think that's how to – because neither is going to go away. The question is how do you create a clutch between the two? Yeah. No, I actually, for sure. And I, and I haven't – I'll be honest with you. I haven't come across many who've really got the balanced approach I was speaking to um, a senior executive in a, an energy company in Houston about three three weeks ago, and and, uh, and they're so successful, they're absolutely enormously successful, and I and I asked him, I, I took the opportunity, I said, what is it? What's the secret? You know, is, is there a sauce? I you know, do you do you give your guys something? And he goes. Absolutely, yes. I give them a focus. We are a focused business. We go after one thing. It's in this threshold. It's in this size bracket. It's in this specific market. End of story. If, it, if anyone's ever distracted beyond that, I reel them in. I, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think focus is one of the things that uh, that – sales managers can give. And I think, again, this is one of the things that, you know, people will discover when they come to the summit is, you know, one of the presentations is going to talk about the crucial role of that frontline manager. They are that buffer or that clutch, if you will, between the requirements, legitimate requirements of the organization as a whole. I mean, at the end of the day, the sales organization is driving the lifeblood, which is revenue. But at the same time, there needs to be an opportunity for the frontline to execute and succeed uh, based on their realities. And if the frontline manager can bring those together, and that's where, again, an organizational process becomes important, um, metrics becomes important, and a laser focus, as you say, on execution. Because even, right. if, even if one of my reps is struggling in what they're doing, as long as they're doing it, I can help them. But if they're not doing it, it's really difficult for me to even begin to understand what, how I might be able to help them. Yeah, it's hard when they're not in the room, right, to start with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And I think, um, what yeah, you, what, sorry. No, I was just going to say that I think often, you know, that middle layer is, is underappreciated and under undersupported. Yeah. No, well, for sure. I mean, because, uh, you know, you get the, the middle layer is actually the tough layer because you have ownership or a, or a senior executive that that's uh, driven fiscally. And uh, regardless of the size of organization, there is a tendency to, as you say, watch, uh, you know, watch the watch the calendar uh, of events versus uh, the makeup of what's really going on out there in the world. And then um, the individual in the middle, of course, is uh, trying to posture and and play some of that out. But generally, what I find is that middle manager is closer to the to the real sense of what's going on in the mind of the salesperson below him. And he's still not that far removed from that, that place of discomfort that's, that's associated with this top-down push. So 
it becomes an it becomes um, an internal battle, you know, and maybe it becomes a psychological battle at that time uh, for that middle management. How do you walk people through through that state of mind? So I think what I try and do is help them avoid it being a battle. I think there's a certain amount of healthy, you know, benefits to having some dynamic tension. Um, a, it makes the day go by quicker. It makes you think a little bit differently and so on. So I'm not one to go out there and, and, and try and create a harmonious state at all costs. I think having some dynamic tension, some push and pull, makes everybody a little bit smarter and think a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So, but if it gets to the point where it's a battle, then I think you know things need to be pulled back in and be examined, and and started all over again. So, absolutely. I think, I think the other, um, from my perspective, the other thing that comes into those managers is if you look at any other department within any given company, usually the manager of that department is somebody who has earned the right to be that, whether through qualifications, skills, this, that, the other. Um, a lot of managers, sales managers, and I was exactly in that same boat. I was a good rep, and I got the attaboy, and they made me a manager. And the only thing I got with right. it was a new chair and a new box of business cards. And I was, <laughs> like, you know, I was like a fish out of water. Um, it was only because I went to my VP and said, you know, I have no idea why you did this to me, but given the choice, I'd like to go back to selling. And he had a long talk with me. And, and, you know, I think he invested in me, and I'll always be grateful to him for that. But had he not, and had I stayed silent and not pushed back like a lot of managers do, you end up with two problems. You've got a territory that's underperforming because you've taken your best rep out of it, and you have somebody who was a good asset to the organization all of a sudden dwindling in their contribution, probably being miserable and pretty close to leaving. Yeah. Or involved the whole organization. Yeah. I was personally involved in a very awkward uh, scenario where I actually was hired into an organization as backfill for someone that was promoted into a regional manager's position, and that individual uh, got got that role simply on tenure and nice guy, right? <laughs> he was like, you talk about fish out of water, this guy was lost, in fact, I actually had it, what was what was unfortunate. I had bigger, bigger and better credentials to actually assume that role. And uh, what I found uh, that, that it was a crazy two years for me because what I found is he kept during his one-on-one meetings with me. He said, "How would you do this? How would you do that? How would you play this out?" <laughs> I hate this job. You know, that was a very difficult position for me as a as a sales executive uh trying to pay attention to his own uh to his own business. Have you have you ever come across anything like that and how how would you uh, how would you counsel somebody in that state? Um I've not had it where I've been quote unquote the frontline rep and somebody was a manager you know, I've seen it. I've been in organizations where people got promoted for political reasons as opposed to logical reasons. Right. Um, but it's never, and I should count myself fortunate, I guess, it's never been my direct manager where they were constantly coming to me. I have had it where either peers who got promoted who may have seen what I do and, and asked me for advice, and certainly right. the core aspect of what I do now, uh, but not where I was, you know, again, directly reporting to somebody who 
was maybe yeah. a little bit out of place and so on. The one thing you have to give him credit for is that at least he asked. A lot of su- a lot of yeah. people suffer in silence. Yeah, no, that that was for sure. I remember him telling me though at the end of it, he goes, uh, "That was the worst two years of my life, right?" <laughs> and, was, and actually, he ended up going back to uh, an account executive role uh, after I left the organization. That's that's how crazy it was. Um, tell me, Tibor, when did you know? When did you know in the in the in the in the walk of your career? When did you know that you were you were positioned and and that your actual purpose in your life was to do what you're doing now. What what kind of flags went off, and and what kind of things happened to you? Um, so I'm not I'm not sure that I ever knew. I think you end up places and figure out why you got there, and then you know figure out how to make the most of it. Um, the brief story was that, as I as Tom mentioned in the introduction. Um, Back in the early 90s, I ended up working for Dow Jones, and I was the first rep up here in Canada. Um, eventually, mm-hmm. I climbed through the ranks. As I mentioned, I had a bit of choppy water when they made me a manager, but once you know I was trained and so on, I eventually directed all of Canada and, and the Midwest and the States. And then I think roughly around 2001, I got this fancy title of Director of Sales Strategy, and part of the mandate was training. And at first it mm-hmm. seemed that it was going to be a small element of what I was doing. Uh, but if you recall, it was around the time that we had just gone through the implosion of the dot-com. And right. you also had 9-11. And you'll recall the big phrase in the market at that time. Ugly days. Those were bad days. Yeah, yeah. and everybody was using the phrase right-sizing, which was, you know, code right. for layoffs. Um, yeah. So we were a subscription business. And every time somebody right-sized, our subscriptions got right-sized with it. And what, yeah. what what was discovered is that our people were great relationship managers, but they weren't good at going out and hunting. And right. Canada had always done pretty well. Um, I think per capita, we sold better than most regions and so on. So if you looked at what we were getting per subscriber and things, so... They said something to the effect, well, you're the director of sales strategy. Canada always did well. You must have the secret sauce. You know, go off or train everybody else. Well, I had no clue why we were doing better. Now I can articulate it. At that time, I couldn't. And so I got together with, um, we brought in about five of the top salespeople in the organization globally into Princeton, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and we spent the week deconstructing the sales, seeing what was unique to regions, what was common, and so on. And through that, with the help of a number of people within Dow Jones, I put together a training program that we then took on the road. Um, at that time, I was by that time I was living down in the states. And around 2004, when it came time to come back here, um, you're at that fork in the road, and somebody whispered in my ear that maybe what I did internally has some commercial value um, outside of that. And so in 2004, yeah. I started Renbor. I guess history right. will tell whether I should have listened to that voice or not, but so far the last 11 years have been fun, productive, and profitable, so no complaints. That's good. Yeah, good story. Yeah. Hey, Tibor, we haven't mentioned anything about your book. I didn't even mention it in the intro, but uh, it received some amazing accolades, including Ivan Meisner, from, uh, founder of BNI, 
who I happened to interview about a month ago, which was very cool. And I forget some of the other names, but there were some big-name people writing testimonials for that book. Talk a little bit about it. It's called The Shift, right? Yeah, it's called Shift, uh, How to Harness uh, Trigger Events to Turn Prospects into Customers. You know, it's an interesting book. I would say if, if, if there was such a thing as the body of my work, it would be a bit of an anomaly for two reasons. Um, one is that it's co-authored with somebody uh, that initially when we got together, we had diametrically opposing views of sales, and I would argue we're <laughs> back to that spot now. But there was this moment where we started talking, and it made sense to write the book together. Initially, I was supposed to come in and just contribute one chapter, which was how do you execute this, so common theme, I guess. Uh, but as we were working through the book, you know, I began to make contribution to other parts and so on. Um, the book was supposed to be part of an ongoing series. To me, there's some great points in the book that I would get behind, but there are some things that my thinking has evolved, and they were supposed to make appearances in subsequent books that never happened. But I think, to me, the book is sort of like a good Beatles album. You get why it was good at the time, but it probably wouldn't be a hit today. <laughs> wow, that's a good that's a good analogy, and we do grow and evolve, and uh, so but it's still out there. It's got yeah, some I very good that, recommendations. I, I, not, I think that it's a good read. I think, but people should look at it as a step along the journey. As opposed, you know, you pick up some sales books, and there's a complete methodology there, and and you can run with it. I mean, you need to adopt it. You need to continue to practice it but you can argue that you can run with it. And, you know, some of the classics, you know, whether it's Spin or some of the other ones, right? I think right, right, I right. would look exactly. at this as part of a body of work, and on its own, it'll move the dial slightly, combined with other things. And I would argue some of the things that I'm, you know, working with and, and presenting to clients now build out on that. And, and, you know, so I guess I need to go out and write the next book on my own. Right, and I don't think any salesman can work just from one book. As you say, work from a body of work, a body of experts, and take a little bit from here, a little bit from Tibor, a little bit from Zig Ziglar, a little bit from Tom Hopkins, and combine it. One of the things that's always bothered me on that book, and I remember it was a great point of debate between myself and my co-author, is on the back it has a silly statement to the effect of, you know, there is a silver bullet in sales. Well, there isn't. You know, mm. First of all, silver bullets are good if you're hunting werewolves, but not that great if you're hunting revenue. And I think, <laughs> you know, if there was a singular truth in sales, that book would have been written, and I'd probably be driving a taxi. Um, <laughs> it's such a variable, and it's got so many moving parts. I don't think there's a single. Um, I don't think there's a single element. So as you say, it's borrowing a bit of this, borrowing a bit of that spicing it to requirements, and then continuing to serve it up and evolve it. Nice. Now, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I suck at this. I should get better, but we've gotten all this far, and I haven't even given people your website yet, and yet when I see the web domain name, I think, oh, what a good domain name. It's sellbetter.ca, isn't it? Sellbetter.ca. You know, somebody it's like, oh. Somebody told me that your web, your URL should tell people what you do or what you help them do or what they're going to get out of visiting you. So I was fortunate right. enough that sellbetter.ca was available, and I snatched it up. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, wow, what a description, sellbetter.ca. As you said, it 
two words tells you exactly what Tibor Shanto does, sellbetter.ca. And so uh, check them out on the website, also uh, torontosalesummit.com. You might get lucky to get that last ticket, but at least visit the website to see how you can watch the live performance. And Tibor said you'd be missing coffee, but no matter where people are, don't worry, Tibor, there will be coffee. So no matter where they're watching, they're going to find a coffee. I'll put a challenge uh, out there to the people that if they email me um, and that ticket is still available, I'll give them a code that will give them some amount off the face value of the uh, the ticket. So if they oh, email nice. me at uh, tibor.shanto at sellbetter.ca, you know, they could be holding that last lucky ticket. So like, mm-hmm. you know, All right. Let me open my email here. Tibor, <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you still blogging? Yeah, I blog uh, twice a week, Monday and Thursday, on my own um, at sellbetter.ca slash blog. It's called The Pipeline. Um, yeah. I do a monthly uh, piece for the Globe and Mail's uh, report on small business. There was something that came uh-huh. out yesterday, so every fourth Tuesday. Um, I do various guest blogs here and there, but um, the primary one is The Pipeline. That's every Monday. And yeah. Every Nice. Has that has that been your has has that been your kind of uh, go to market vehicle for you? And is that where you got the most uh, get got, get the most viewers? Um, I, I, there's no escaping the fact that uh, LinkedIn drives traffic to that. But it is, I mean, it, it is where if people want to know what I'm about, and I think the right. advantage to them is that most people. It's interesting for me that when I go and meet with potential prospects, they've already checked out my blog, and yep. that's where my voice resonates. And the great thing is they know what they're getting before I come in. Um, yeah, that's surprises. good. And so, yes, I think it has defined my brand, for lack of a better term. Yeah. yeah. Now, oh, you, wrote, you wrote one a few months ago. I think it was about cold calling. Ooh, that got a lot of action. I remember there was comments, there was likes, and I was like, ooh. People are really hit the nail on the head with that one. Do you remember which one that was? Yeah, well, I write a lot about cold calling because it's like red meat to the masses. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Very controversial topic, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting because, you know, people say cold calling is dead, and I say, you know, it's like zombies. Every time somebody kills it, it seems to come back. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, with the new castle laws up here in Canada, cold calling is having a revival. Um, I have an app coming out that's dealing specifically with cold calling. It's something people can use on their mobile device, and it'll also be part of the Salesforce.com app exchange. And it's interesting, the people who've seen it so far in its early stages, again, what they're looking for is a better way or an additional way to engage with clients. And cold calling is part of the toolkit. It's not the end-all and be-all but it is part of the toolkit along with social selling, along with email, along with other things. But I think to say that cold calling is dead is, again, like making zombie movies. Like Frank Zappa said about yeah. jazz, it's not dead, it just smells funny. Right, yeah. and you just sent off a giant shockwave in my brain. I hadn't associated it, but of course it's the castle law. And of course so many of our listeners are American, but it's the Canadian anti-spam law. Uh, like I, you can barely email your brother or sister without uh, violating that castle law, and so how the heck you're going to do business? You can't even just send a friendly email to someone asking if possibly you might be able to do business together. And so because of that, of course, it would make cold calling 
I would revive cold calling because otherwise you're going to be breaking a number of laws and, and it may have some severe penalties to it and heck are you going to initiate business? Uh, so I hadn't thought of that, but that law makes cold calling more important than ever. On July 1, when it came in last year, I wrote a blog post thanking Mr. Harper. Um. <laughs> yeah, he took the power out of the hands of the social media people and put it back in the hands of the salespeople. I think so, but I think what I'd like to, you know, if, if I was to move on to sort of my next mission in sales, it would be to de-hyphenate sales. I really bristle at descriptions like social selling and other kind of selling. I mean, you're selling, you know, and, and you right, right. all the all the tools that are available to you, all the intelligence that's available to you, so you actually do what you're supposed to do, which is deliver value for your customers and your company. Right. Well, I think I think the you know the mode the mode that I take is that I'm going to pump out as much information about who I am, what we are, what we do, how how great we are, uh, how easy we are to talk to, how transparent we are, and so that the, when the time comes, because to connect with someone, because I've always said, you 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 might you know you might influence them online. But you'll never close them online. You've got to close them in person, and, and that and that could be on a phone call, you know. And so you have to get there eventually. So hopefully that call isn't as cold, by virtue of the client having at least consumed a little bit of that information. I think that's why your blog worked for you. I think that's exactly why your blog works because you, like you said. They, it, it kind of gives them a picture of you, gives them a sense of who you are, what you're about, and so that when you speak to them, it, they don't actually feel like a real stranger to you. That's right. And I think, you know, again, no matter how you get there, there's always, not always, I mean, look, if there's a warm referral, if Tom introduces me to somebody and, and in a yeah. sense vouches for my credibility and so on, that person is likely going to take my call, and if they're actually in the market, they're likely going to sit down with me. But I would Correct. argue for at least 50% of true B2B sales, not order taking, but sales, where you have to actually convince and persuade, um, at one point you're going to have to pick up that phone. There's that awkward last inch that's generally best accomplished by phone, and the more prepared you Correct. are for that, the better. I think the other is, you know, cold calling is a phrase that's thrown around sort of like the boogeyman, and I think, you know, very few people define cold calling because it's easy to scare people with something undefined. And to me, cold calling is simply calling somebody who fits your profile. You've been able to help other people like them. It's just that mm -hmm. you're not in their diary. And since they're already trying to pack 16 hours into a 10-hour day, your call is an interruption or a disruption. And that's a cold call. It's not picking up Correct. a phone book and starting at the letter M and calling people at random. And I think that a lot of the naysayers, that's what they try and paint cold calling as, but that's not what it is. No. No. no well, uh, Tibor, we've got three salespeople on the call here, so we could probably be talking for three hours and then mis missing our metrics here uh, because we're looking at the shiny objects and excited about them. Uh, but, yeah, thank you so much for your uh, time today. As I said uh, at the start, I've been a fan of yours for three or four years since Milos introduced uh, me to 
uh, who you are and visited your website and follow. Obviously, I followed your blog because I knew about that Globe and Mail article and all the comments and uh, interest it got. And so, sellbetter.ca. I'm a big fan. I highly recommend uh, uh, people visit that website and. Uh, uh, also, tibor.chanto at sellbetter.ca. Try and get that last ticket to the Toronto Sales Summit and pay attention because with such good success, I bet it's going to be coming to another city near you somewhere in Canada. Uh, so thanks so much for your time today, Tibor. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And perhaps we can talk after the summit and give you a brief summary on that as well. But I really That'd appreciate the opportunity to speak again. Hey, great. Excellent. Thanks, Tibor. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.